0: Thomas McPheeters walked into the office of his coworker Cyrus. The two men could not be more different. Thomas was a strong believer who worshipped God boldly in the law office where the two men worked. He was known for always sharing his faith, praying, and having a Bible in his office. Cyrus was a drunk. He'd been arrested and thrown out of his political office for accepting bribes and stealing money. He had left his wife and daughters. He was barely holding on to his job now as his drinking controlled his life. Thomas asked Cyrus a question. What stops you from being a Christian? Cyrus laughed at him. I think your Bible says drunks are doomed to hell. And I'm a drunk. Thomas pushed him further. Why have you never become a Christian? Cyrus shrugged. No one ever told me how to become a Christian. Right there, Thomas shared with Cyrus how he could become a Christian. That conversation changed Cyrus's life and the course of history. our third episode on the series on the Zionist movement of the late 1800s. If you're new to this podcast, this is the Church History Podcast, and I'm your host, Laura Lee Siemens. This podcast covers the Church story from the time of Christ until today. We're telling the story in chronological order. You can hear the stories of the Apostles, the Councils, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Reformation, the discovery of the Americas, the fight to end slavery, and the missionary movement of the 1800s. Over the next few weeks, we're talking about the Zionist movement that took place during this time period. In our first episode in this series, we did an overview of the history of Israel from the time of Abraham until the 1800s. In our second episode, we told the story of Mark Twain visiting Israel and the desert of dry bones that he discovered as prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. We also talked about the different types of Zionists that started to arise. There was the cultural Zionist that wanted to reestablish the Hebrew language, bringing back this Jewish language, both written and spoken, and reestablish Israel as a cultural nation. There was the spiritual Zionists who were waiting for the Messiah. They began to believe that it was not only their duty to wait for God, but that God was waiting for them. The Messiah would come once they returned to the land. This group returned to their homeland to wait for their Messiah. There was the Socialist Zionist. This group was connected to Marx and Marxism. They believed that the Jews could set up the perfect socialist country. Today, the kibbutz are tiny socialist villages The first kibbutz was established in 1910, and if the word sounds familiar, it's because it was a kibbutz that was attacked on October 7th. The fourth group was the Westernized Zionism, which thought that a Jewish state could promote Western ideas in the Middle East. And the final group was the Christian Zionists, who wanted to help the Jewish people establish the land God had given them. Today... We're telling the story of the man who lit the torch of the Christian Zionist movement. This man is seen as either a hero or a villain. He's a saint or a demon. There seems to not be anyone who sees him anywhere in between. At the end of this episode, I'll lay out the criticisms, the ones that seem fair and the ones that I feel are unfair. As always in this podcast, my goal is to tell the stories. So, here is the story of Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. On August 19, 1843, Cyrus was born to Elias and Abigail Schofield in Clinton Township, Michigan. His parents, Elias and Abigail, were descendants of the English Puritans, but they did not have a personal relationship with God, nor did they follow the path of their Puritan ancestors. They occasionally attended the Episcopalian Church. Cyrus was the youngest of seven children and would be the last child born into the family because when Cyrus was just three months old, his mother Abigail died. His father remarried, and Cyrus grew up with his stepmother as the only mother he knew. But then, at a young age, his stepmother also died, and his father remarried again, and Cyrus would have a third mother. Cyrus's father moved the family to Lebanon, Tennessee. Here, Cyrus moved in with his sister, Laura, and her husband. Cyrus had never attended school, but his father and stepmother had educated him at home. He decided to attend the University of Virginia. He started school in 1861. Then, the Civil War started. Even though 17-year-old Cyrus was from Michigan, he lived in the South when the war started. Cyrus lied about his age, claiming to be 20, and joined the Confederate army. He fought in many famous battles and won the Confederate Cross of Honor. But as the war raged on, Cyrus was wounded and spent time in the hospital. He was ordered to return to the battlefield after leaving the hospital. At this point, Cyrus realized he did not belong on the south side of the war. He escaped to the Union side of the battle in Bowling Green, Kentucky. He took the Union Oath of Allegiance and then was allowed a safe passage to Missouri. That is where he settled. In 1866, Cyrus met a French woman named Liotine Labue-Carrier. She was part of a very wealthy Catholic family. The family was well-known and respected. Cyrus married and then started working with his new brother in law. In 1869, Cyrus moved with his family to Kansas. While in Kansas, Cyrus began to work with politicians in the area. In 1871, he ran for office and was elected to the Kansas House of Representatives. He began working for John J. Ingalls, who was running to be the senator for Kansas. After Ingalls won, and became a U.S. Senator, he helped Cyrus become the U.S. District Attorney for Kansas. Cyrus was only 29 years old and the youngest district attorney in the country. During their time in Washington with the elites, Cyrus was introduced to fancy parties that involved heavy drinking. And Cyrus enjoyed all of it. The fancy parties, the high-end expensive lifestyle, especially the drinking. He was living the life. He is married into a rich family, the youngest district attorney in the country, friends with the most elite in the country, everything a young man could want. He also, by this time, had two daughters. The most important thing to Cyrus is that he would not lose any of it and would have the money to fund the most lavish lifestyle anyone could imagine. And that led to his downfall. Just one year into his job as the district attorney, Cyrus took bribes from the railroad. He also took money that was supposed to go to the election campaign for his friend John Ingalls. After he was caught, his whole life fell apart. Most historians say he went to prison, although there is no prison record to confirm this. He did, however, lose his job and was disgraced. In shame, he walked away from his family, returned to St. Louis, and tried to start his law firm but he spent every evening drinking in saloons until his law firm closed in 1877 Cyrus's wife was given a legal separation based on abandonment and began the court order for full and legal divorce in 1879 at 36 years old Cyrus was working at a law office barely holding on to his job disgraced with no family, in the pit of despair, when his co worker Thomas walked into his office. Thomas was known in the office as a strong Christian. He was never afraid to pray or talk about his faith. Everyone knew Thomas was a Christian. That day, Thomas asked Cyrus why he was not a Christian. Cyrus thought Thomas had lost his mind. He was the town drunk, the least respectable person. There was not a church in the country that would want him. He answered, I know the Bible says drunks go to hell and that's where I will be. Thomas asked him again, I know about your drinking, but that doesn't answer my question. Why are you not a Christian? Cyrus answered, No one ever told me how to become a Christian. Right there, Thomas pulled out his Bible and began reading John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Acts chapter three, verse 19, "Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God loved Cyrus, and if he repented and turned to Christ. His sins would be blotted out, and he could have forgiveness. Cyrus and Thomas knelt on the floor in his law office and prayed. Cyrus confessed his sins and asked Jesus to forgive him. And Cyrus, the town drunk and thief, was converted and became a Christian. A few days later, Cyrus was walking along the road in town. He passed a storefront window, and in the store he saw a painting of Daniel in the lion's den. He stood and looked at the picture. Daniel stood with his hands tied behind his back while the lions moved in on him. Cyrus saw himself in that picture. He was standing helpless with the temptations of his past life closing in on him. His sinful habits calling for him. He stood there and prayed that God would shut the mouth of the lions. As he had shut the mouth of Daniel's lions. Cyrus was as helpless as Daniel, with his arms tied behind him in the lion's den. But Cyrus served the same God as Daniel. God was strong and able. Cyrus began to study the Bible day and night, and he also started working with the YMCA to help young men learn more about the Bible. During his work with the YMCA, he met Dwight Moody. We did an episode on the YMCA and two episodes on the life of Dwight Moody. You can go back and hear them, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. In 1883, four years after Cyrus became a Christian, his divorce was finalized. Although it was started in 1877, before Cyrus became a Christian, it was finalized after he became a Christian. Although he did write to his daughters up until his death, he never returned to his family, nor did he talk about his daughters openly. The same year that Cyrus' wife divorced him, he became the pastor of a very small church in Dallas, Texas. The church had 12 members, and 11 of them were women. After one year, the church had 75 members and had sent a missionary to India. And after 10 years, the church had grown to over 500 people. Dwight asked him to come and pastor of church, the Trinitarian Church in Massachusetts. Cyrus had married one of the church members named Hetty Van Walk, and they had a son named Noel. He never spoke of his first family, and many believe that the church congregation was actually unaware that he had a family that he had abandoned before he became a Christian. In 1886, D.L. Moody held a crusade in the same city as Cyrus. Ira Sankey also was at this crusade, singing. During this time, Moody and Cyrus became great friends. Moody respected Cyrus's preachings and his teachings. And he invited him to come in 1888 to attend the Niagara Bible Conference. Missionaries and pastors met at the Queen's Royal Hotel in Niagara-on-the-Lake in Ontario, Canada. Missionaries, such as Ademeyer Judson and Hudson Taylor, were at the conference. Cyrus learned from these two men a new way to see the mission movement, and you can learn about both of these men in past episodes where I covered their stories. There was also James H. Brooks and Arno C. Gabelin. These were two very strong dispensationalists. We discussed dispensationalism in our episode on the life of John Nelson Darby, who died in 1882, six years before the conference. We will talk about dispensationalism near the end of this episode. Also at the conference were A.C. Dixon, James M. Gray, and H.A. Ironside, three pastors who worked with D.L. Moody and were known for expository preaching and writing. That means they preached through the Bible verse by verse instead of speaking on a topic and finding verses to support the topic. Also at the conference was William E. Blackstone, a preacher speaking about the Jewish people returning to their homeland and the re-establishment of Israel, as prophesied in the Old Testament prophets. All three groups were extremely influential on Cyrus, who had also been studying the teachings of John Darby. The conference met more times over the next few years, and the meetings ended with what is known as the Niagara Creed. Here are the 14 points of the Niagara Creed. The original manuscripts were inspired scriptures. 2. The Trinity. 3. The creation of man, the fallen to sin, and total depravity. 4. The universal transmission of spiritual death from Adam. 5. The necessity of the new birth. 6. Redemption by the blood of Christ. 7. Salvation by faith alone in Christ. 8. The assurance of salvation. 9 the centrality of Jesus Christ throughout all the scriptures. 10. The Constitution of the True Church by Genuine Believers 11. The Personality of the Holy Spirit 12. The Believers' Call to a Holy Life 13. The Immediate Passing of the Souls of Believers to be with Christ at Death And 14. The Premillennial Second Coming of Christ The conference and the time he spent, especially with Hudson Taylor, led Cyrus to start the Central American Mission. He also began to work with the American Home Missionary Society of Texas and Louisiana. He also started the Lake Charles College to help train missionaries. He also began to want to help congregations understand dispensationalism. He wrote Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth in 1888. He also started a monthly mailing for people to order a Bible school training at home. It was called The Believer. It was a comprehensive Bible correspondence course. This was something that people had not had access to before, and it opened up the door for the regular church member to attend school while still taking care of the family, working, running a farm, or working at a factory. You didn't have to go away to go to Bible school. In July of 1901, Cyrus attended the Bible conference at Sea Cliff, Long Island in New York. During this conference, he talked with the editor of Our Hope magazine. While talking to him, Cyrus shared an idea he had. He wanted to make sure that everyone who wanted to could study the Bible and have the opportunity to have a preacher explain each verse to them. He wanted to publish a Bible with notes explaining the parts that were hard to understand. It would be a Bible commentary on each page of the Bible. The idea was passed on of this Bible to Oxford University Press, and a year later, Cyrus signed a contract to write that Bible. Five years later, in 1909, with the help of James Gray, the president of Moody Bible Institute, William G. Moorhead the president of Xenia Theological Seminary, and Henry Wheaton, the president of Croxer Theological Seminary, and Edmore Harris, the president of the Toronto Bible Training School. The Bible was ready for publication. In the year 1560, the Geneva Bible had been published. It was the first to include a commentary, but in the 349 years following the publication of the Geneva Bible, no other Bible had been published with commentary until the publication of Cyrus' Bible. It was called the Schofield Reference Bible. In 1917, Cyrus updated the Bible, adding more commentary. Here are some of the teachings that were in the commentary. The creation date was 4004 BC, and the world was created in seven literal days. There was a cross reference to show places where the Bible verses tied together, but the biggest and most controversial teaching were the dispensationalism and literal interpretation of the book of Revelation and the prophets of the Old Testament. There was also the showing that Israel was distinct from the church. God's underlying purpose in the world was not to save humanity, but to display His glory. Schofield wrote this about the book of Revelation. Doubtless, much of which is obscure to us will be clear to those for whom it is written as the time approaches. The Schofield Bible quickly became popular. The regular person in the pew could sit down and read the Old Testament with a Bible professor explaining what they were reading. As the church began to read the prophets and study the Old Testament, they also began to love the Jewish people and see all the promises God gave to the nation of Israel, that they would be reestablished one day in their land. Verses such as Amos chapter 9, verses 14-15 to 15, Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine, And make gardens, and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. And they will not again be rooted out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Or Zechariah chapter 8 verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west, and I will bring them back. They will live amid Jerusalem, and they shall be my people and I will be their god in truth and righteousness. Cyrus didn't only educate people through his writings, he also established schools. In 1914, Schofield established Bible schools for America's east coast, the Philadelphia School of the Bible, and he became the president. The same year, World War I broke out. We're going to go into detail about the war in the new year, but during the first world war, some wondered if they were living in the Great Tribulation, or if the end of the world was soon. This made many people want to study more about the prophecies. After three years of war, 40 million people dead, on December 30th, 1917, the British took control of Palestine. Many in the Church thought this was the start of the prophecies beginning to unfold. The Ottoman Empire was falling, And they had lost control of Palestine. Britain had control now. People were looking to see what was going to happen. There was an excitement in the church. Would they be the generation to see the prophecies unfold? The nation of Israel reestablished in front of their eyes, not figuratively, but a real, tangible nation. Schofield wrote a letter to his friend. The Jews are returning to Israel, and for the first time, we have a real prophetic sign. But Cyrus did not see the nation of Israel reestablished; He saw only the Jewish people returning to the land. However, that land was at that time controlled by the British Empire. July 24, 1921, on a Sunday morning, Cyrus Schofield died quietly in his home. After his death, his teachings continued. His Bible was very popular, and his friend, Louis Chaffer, founded the Dallas Theological Seminary. This seminary also taught dispensationalism and the end times teachings that Schofield followed. Tens of millions of copies of his Bible have been sold. Here are the ways Cyrus Schofield impacted the world. The Bible Conference Movement. These were conferences not for pastors, but for lay people, giving them a chance to hear teachings they would not receive from their churches. At this conference... He preached clearly and effectively there was educational institutions the southwestern school of the bible the northfield bible training school the philadelphia school of the bible and there was also his correspondence school he started missionary agencies sending missionaries across the world and there was his literary works he wrote lane papers of the holy spirit in 1899 no room in the inn in 1913 New Life of Jesus Christ in 1915. Where Faith Sees Christ in 1916. Schofield's Question Box in 1917. The Epistles of the Galatians in 1903. The World's Approaching Crisis in 1913. Addresses on Prophecy in 1914. Will the Church Pass Through the Tribulation? 1917. What Do the Prophets Say? 1918. Things Old and New? 1922. And of course, his first book in 1888, rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. But he is most famous for the now famous Schofield Reference Bible, published in 1909 and revised in 1917. Okay, so what is meant by dispensationalism? First, dispensationalists believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. The saying is, whenever possible, take the Bible literally. Only if it is impossible to be taken literally should you look for other options, such as symbolic. 2. Dispensationalists teach that the church and Israel are two different things. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, we looked forward to the cross. In the New Testament, we look back to the cross. However, salvation that is for all people, both Jews and Gentiles, is a separate thing from the promises in the Old Testament specifically for the Jewish people. Especially the promises with the land given to Abraham and his descendants as the promised land, Israel. While salvation is for all people, the promise for land, the promise passed on to descendants, and the blessings are fulfilled for the Jewish people, and those are not promises for the church. Third, The Bible is organized into seven dispensations or stages. First, innocence in the garden before sin came into the world, where man fellowshiped with God. Then, conscience. This is after sin came into the world, the story of Cain and Abel and the blood sacrifice used to cover sin. Human government, which is the story of Noah and the Tower of Babel. Promise. God calls Abraham and makes an everlasting covenant with God and Abraham's descendants. Law. God gives the law on Mount Sinai. Grace. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and the time of the church. The millennial kingdom, where Jesus will return and rule on the world for 1,000 years. Most who follow dispensational teaching also believe the church will be raptured followed by seven years of tribulation, ending with Jesus' return and a 1,000-year kingdom on earth, with a new Jerusalem being established. All right, that's what dispensationalism means, so why do people hate Schofield and are some of their criticisms fair? First, he is criticized for abandoning his family, and this is partially fair. He abandoned his family before he became a Christian. And even though the divorce was finalized after he became a Christian, the divorce was started before he became a Christian and it was also started by his wife. However, while he wrote letters to his daughters for the rest of his life, he never talked about his first family and he left nothing for them in the will. This is a fair criticism. He did not, however, leave his family in poverty. His first wife was from a very wealthy family And they had family money. His second wife and son had helped him in his ministry and with his writings. His wife was one of his main editors, and his son had also helped him. So, leaving everything to his wife and his son in his will may possibly have been the ethical thing to do. So, yes, he was a terrible father and husband to his first wife. And, once he became a Christian while he did right to his daughters, He never talked about them in public. And when he wrote about his family, he only talked about his son and not his daughters. And many during his life did not even know he had two daughters from a previous marriage. And here, I do see failure. And it's fair to criticize that. Second, his theology is criticized. This is also fair. Christians have the right, I would even say the responsibility, to question teachings and doctrines. Paul praised the Bereans for always searching the scriptures before accepting teachings. And while the Bible is inspired, the Schofield commentary is not inspired. I remember one time I heard a pastor from the pulpit say this, Not everything in your Bible is inspired. Whoa, red flags. But then he explained that most of our Bibles today had devotions or Bible studies added in, And those additions, while very helpful in our Bible study, are not inspired and can and should be questioned. So, yes, you absolutely can disagree with his theology and question it. The third criticism is that his teachings drove the church to want to see Israel established as a nation. The fact that his Bible was published just as the Ottoman Empire was falling and Britain was gaining control of the land called Palestine. Did impact the Christian Zionist movement, and people saw the return of the Jewish people to the promised land as prophecy being fulfilled. So, if you hate Jews, you hate Israel, then you probably hate Schofield. And to be honest, it seems that the Christians who love Jewish people and who love the nation of Israel see Schofield as a hero, and those who hate Jews and hate the nation of Israel see Schofield as a demon. So if you hate Israel, then it's a fair criticism to say that Schofield's teaching inspired the church to love Israel and to love the Jewish people, because that definitely did happen. What I hear and read that is very unfair is something like this. Schofield was a drunk and a thief. He abandoned his family. He went to prison for stealing and embezzlement, and then he conned the church into believing this weird doctrine called dispensationalism. It's weird because, well, they leave out the part in the middle where he came to Christ and changed his life completely. God can change anyone. And if you don't believe in the power of God to change people, then you have no right to teach the Bible. Every Christian should see the salvation of Schofield as a miracle and a complete reversal in his life. It's remarkable. And it's false and lying to tell the story of Cyrus Schofield and leave out his conversion. Even worse, I've heard some people say this. He claimed a come to Jesus moment to get out of prison and then continued the con on the church. That just didn't happen. It's factually untrue. We're not even positive he went to prison because there's no records of that. But if he did go to prison, it was once he had moved out of state and had found a new job that he was led to the Lord through a coworker. Alright, here are my personal thoughts. God blessed Abraham and promised him he would be a nation. He then blessed his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, whom he renamed Israel, and passed that blessing on to the twelve sons of Israel as the twelve tribes of Israel. Ten of his sons turned on his son Joseph, selling him as a slave to Egypt. But God used that for good, setting Joseph up as the second-in-command, and giving the 12 tribes a place to live when famine came. But that eventually led to slavery, where the nation of Israel was held for 400 years before God freed them through a man named Moses, who led them back to the Promised Land as the first Zionist movement. Joshua then divided the land into 12 sections for the 12 tribes, conquering the land, driving the people out, and taking the land. Judges ruled But then they asked for a king and God warned them that was a bad idea, but he gave it to them anyway. Saul was the first king. He was terrible. Then came David, the greatest king of Israel. After David, Solomon, who built the temple. And then came Rehoboam, who was so terrible, the country was divided into the north Israel and the south Judah. Israel did not even have one king who loved God, except for maybe Jehu for a short time. Judah had eight kings that served God, And God sent prophets to tell Judah they would be taken captive for 70 years because of their sin. And he told Israel they would be scattered throughout the earth because of their sin. But he told both Judah and Israel this message. I love you. You have to be punished for your sins, but you need to know that my love for you is eternal and will never go away. My love is forever and you will return to this land and be one nation again not divided. And your land will flourish as never before. And once you are reestablished as one nation, you will never again leave this land. After 70 years in captivity in Babylon, God used the non-Jewish man, King Cyrus, to aid the Jewish people back to the land of Judah, the second Zionist movement. In the Old Testament, it was that Gentile non-Jewish King Cyrus who helped Ezra and Nehemiah return the Jewish people to their land. That was Judah, who God prophesied would return after 70 years. But what about Israel? God said he would scatter them throughout the world and someday call them back. Well, 2,447 years after the non-Jewish king Cyrus helped the nation of Judah back to the promised land, God called another non-Jewish man named Cyrus, to publish a study Bible that called the church to help the Jewish people return to their land. It seems like only God could do something like that. I love that God used a man named Cyrus to inspire the church to call the Jewish people back to the promised land. Next week, going to look at the man who found peace in a life full of unimaginable pain and used that peace to help the Jewish people return to their land. He's known for a famous hymn that he wrote, but it was his work in the Zionist movement that he was most proud of. You don't want to miss this episode, because I guarantee the hymn that he wrote is one of your favorite hymns. Until next week, I'm Loralee Sears.